Okay, Ezekiel. Everybody grab a seat so you can open your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. Raise your hand if you want a copy of the notes. Okay, Ezekiel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It's precious to us. It gives us the uh, way of salvation. It gives us the way of sanctification. And we're thankful for it. Without it, we would sort of be stumbling around as Christians. But we have uh, instructions. We have uh, the pure word that is truth. So help us today uh, to live it out, to learn from it, to do what you've called us to do, to learn from the Old Testament and see the many mistakes that were made so that we would not make those. Give us wisdom. Give us wisdom, Lord, as we read and understand your scripture. In the name of Christ, amen. So you'll have to remind me. I know we got through We got through most of Ezekiel. I think we were on to the interpretive issues. We probably covered some detail up to around chapter 36 or 37. Just to remind you before we go into some of these, to the outline here, let's get to that. This outline here, the consolation comes in at the last part of Ezekiel. So it's not all judgment. It's not all uh, condemnation. There is judgment. That's the message for Israel. But then Jerusalem actually is destroyed. So that's sort of what the, the signs that Ezekiel does to show people and the prophecies are about the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, Ezekiel is already in captivity, but there's consolation. There's a promise of restoration. So in chapter 33, we get that promise starting. God's talking about the future. Now, if you're in exile and you've been taken there against your will, and you just heard that your beloved city, a homeland, has been destroyed, you would love to hear some promises of restoration at this point. This will be a great opportunity for that message to go out. And that's exactly what God does in his own providential timing. He starts in 33 just talking about the watchman. The watchman. Ezekiel himself is a watchman. He's appointed by God to, to take a message to the people. And if he delivers that message, then he's done his job. He's faithfully executed his duty. But if he hasn't, if, if somebody gets a word from the Lord, a prophet, for example, and they don't take the message to the people then not only is the guilt upon the people, but it's also upon the messenger. And I think that applies as well to pastors and preachers today. They have to deliver the word of God faithfully. So look at 33.7. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood... I will require from your hand. So you have some, some guilt in that, he's saying. And, and that, that, apply, that principle applies to preachers and teachers today. You've got to preach what's in the text. If the text says a person who sins is going to hell without Christ, now we've got to preach that. If it says God will bless you if you're a believer and following his law, then we've got to preach that. We have to preach the word, and good or bad, whatever God says, he is right. And if it's bad news, they need to hear it. If it's good news, they need to hear that too. And he's just reminding Ezekiel because the shepherds of Israel had not done that. So that's how it starts out. And then it goes into chapter 34 there. Specifically talking about the shepherds of Israel. 35 is against uh, Moab there. 36, talking about how Israel will be blessed in the future. And then uh, 36, 22, that's where we get into the new covenant language that we looked at. The regeneration, the valley of dry bones here. Chapter 37 is a, is a famous sort of classic passage. 
the hand of the Lord, chapter 37 of Ezekiel, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them and round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones. Say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So what's he talking about there? Well, he's just told them that in the future, Israel is going to be restored. It's going to be blessed. The country, the people will will dwell securely in the land. Then he said he's going to put a spirit, his spirit in them. He's going to take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh. So the question is, well, how is Israel going to be faithful? How is Israel going to be believing? Well, Israel here are the dry bones. They're like dead men, because people who are unregenerate are dead. Ezekiel's sort of seeing this vision of what it's going to look like when God regenerates a whole nation, a whole group of people. I don't think he's talking about the resurrection in context here. Uh, Even uh, verse 11 explains it. He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you. You will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. So he's talking about a spiritual regeneration that's yet to come. A spiritual regeneration of Israel. He's not speaking here of the literal resurrection that will take place. But he's using that as an illustration of what's going to happen in the people. Because they're saying in captivity, we're dead. Our country is dead. Our people, we're just like bones lying in the grave out there. And God says, hey, I can raise up bones. If you call yourself bones, fine, I'll raise you up still. I, I can do miraculous, wonderful things. 38 talks about Gog and Magog. We'll look at that as an interpretive issue. 39 as well. This is, I think, uh, looking at a, a battle that is to come in the end. And then 40 speaks of this temple. For eight, nine chapters, Ezekiel's describing a temple and he's giving instructions that he receives from this angel who goes out and measures everything down to the specific measurements of the wall, the columns, the height, the width. So let's get into some of those. I think that's where we left off. Interpretive issue. We did this, right? The 30th year, number one. Are we on two? Does anybody remember last week? Y'all expect me to remember, don't you? Okay, let's start on number one. So what is a selected interpretive problems? Well, think of it this way. When you're reading through Ezekiel, you know those questions you have where you say, I wonder what that means. Well, these are some of the harder ones of that list. We're going to look at those, look at some of the options that commentaries have said, that people have said in Christianity. These are ones that uh, commentaries often debate and argue about a bit. Some of these are hard. So One of these today, I don't think we can really solve perfectly. Sometimes it's uh, a liberal versus conservative view. Uh, sometimes we're looking at different theological underpinnings that are being expressed, sometimes different hermeneutics. So chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chebar among the exiles. The heavens were open and I saw the visions of God. So the book starts in this 30th year. The 30th year of what, Ezekiel? What is the 30th year? Because in verse 2, he gives us the date on the fifth month in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile. The word of the Lord came to me. 
So if two is the date of the book according to when the king was ruling, then what's verse one talking about? The 30th year. So our options that have been narrowed down are the same year as mentioned in verse two. So it's somehow he's talking about the same year, but expressing it in another way. The more sort of uh, less conservative view here would be that the year needs to be corrected. There's an error in Ezekiel's writing or still somewhat conservative, but there's maybe a textual issue has been changed over time as they copied the manuscripts. Um, we have to be very careful with that one. I mean, there needs to be other manuscripts out there to show that there's another word here and there's not for Ezekiel. So the best option is probably the year of Ezekiel's birth. So he's about 30 when this prophecy starts. He's born in the land. He's born in probably the Jerusalem or somewhere around there. And then he gets transported with either his family or as a young person. Remember in Daniel, when we get to Daniel, we'll talk about the young, bright people who were taken, taken by Nebuchadnezzar and spread around. So that's the best option there. By the way, you can disagree with me on any of these. We're not going to have a debate in class about it. But when, when you do disagree, you want to have good evidence. You can go home and study these out on your own anytime. Number two, what does it mean here in verse 14 of chapter 3 when he talks about being embittered? We'll just start back in verse 12 to get the context here. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in his place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another, the sound of the wheels beside them, even a great rumbling sound. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went embittered in the rage of my spirit. And the hand of the Lord was strong on me. Then I came to the exiles who lived beside the river Chebar at Tel Abib, and I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. So this is the end of his commission. He's seen the Lord. He's seen this vision, God's throne, the cherubim, the wheels. And then the Spirit lifts him up and, and puts him back where he lives and, and he awakens or however that works. And he's there. Now he's going to be quiet for, for seven days. So what does it mean that he's embittered in the rage of my spirit? And his human spirit, he's upset. He's angered. So our options are a bitter over the nature of the message and the anticipated unresponsiveness of the people. The same attitude as Yahweh had toward Israel. So is he upset that he's got this awesome, powerful message from God, but they're not going to listen? And he already knows that. Just like Isaiah was told by God, they're not going to listen. They're going to be stubborn, going to be stiff-necked. Is that what he's embittered about? Or is he bitter at God? Bitter at Yahweh's imposition on his life and the implications of the commission for him. Uh, he shared the rebellion of the people. So some people will take this view. It's kind of, uh, if you're just reading along and don't stop and think, you might take it that way, that he's upset at God. This is too much, God. This is too much for me. It's too much for my people. Or is he just upset that the vision had finally ended, that the vision had stopped? I think he's upset based on the context. He's upset that they're not going to listen, that they're not going to listen. He's been called as a prophet. He knows Jeremiah. They didn't listen to him. They didn't listen to Isaiah. They didn't listen to Moses. Who is Ezekiel to go and somehow make a difference if they won't listen to those great men? And he's upset. Because remember, he's going to have to do all these things. Play in the mud with sticks. Dig through the wall. Cook food over human dung. Animal dung, I guess, eventually. So I think he's just upset based on the context of how they're not going to listen. Kind of like a preacher who gets fiery because he knows that we have a stubbornness common in us as people or even as Christians. Any comments so far? All right, let's talk about this idea of death and life. It comes up a couple of times. 3.16, and these are just pointing back really to the Mosaic Covenant. 
At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die. And you do not warn them or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin. And his righteous deeds, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. So this is the same thing we looked at in chapter 33. He repeats it again there. Is this talking about the New Testament idea of spiritual death? If you continue in your sin, you're going to die eternally. And if you live righteously as a new covenant Christian, you're going to live. Is this Jesus saying there, there are those who build their house on sand? And those who build their house on the bedrock. Remember in, the, in Matthew he says, Some will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not do this for you? Did I not do that for you? And he says, Away from me, you who committed lawlessness. Or is this physical death? Where God's just saying, Look, I told you, in the Mosaic Covenant, you go into the land, you do what I say, you live. You don't, you die. And the whole nation is dying at this point as they're taken into captivity. Well, it's, it's physical death. Uh, there's only one commentator, I think Kidner, says that it's uh, spiritual death, and he's thinking more from the New Testament backwards. But if you take it in the context of the Old, these promises are for physical death or physical life. And that's what he's talking about with the context of Jerusalem being destroyed and Israel being destroyed. It's a physical destruction. Now, is it true that when people are punished by the Lord and he takes their life, that that also might mean they're spiritually dead as well? Of course. We know many of them are. You just read the book of Hebrews. And it points back to Israel in the, in the wilderness and, and the book of Numbers. And it just says they did not enter his rest. They did not physically enter his rest. And the spiritual implications are there as well. So, yes, these wicked people, they would have eternal death. But that doesn't mean every single person that God takes early or, or takes in a certain way, or takes their life, is necessarily condemned to eternal death. And it doesn't mean that everybody who lived a long life was necessarily going to be blessed with eternal life. We see the psalmist crying out, why is it that the wealthy seem to live a long life? And there, there are sinful, wealthy people who live this long life, and yet the righteous die. Okay, here's the tough one, the hard one, the difficult one. What is this reference to these days? Remember Ezekiel has to lay on his side one time for so long? This is in 4.4. One of the early signs, as for you, lie down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. You shall bear that iniquity for the number of days that you lie on it. For I have assigned you a number of days corresponding to the years of their iniquity, 390 days. Thus you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. When you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. I have assigned it to you for 40 days, a day for each year. So every day he lays on the side is supposed to represent a year. The problem is we can't fit these years in the Bible anywhere nicely. Some say, look, this is looking back to the past. And I, I would take it as looking back to the past, just in the context. He seems to be saying, Israel sinned against me for this many years. So you're going to represent that by laying on your side that long. Northern tribe, or maybe just Israel as a whole. And then when the tribe split, that's Judah to the south, 40 days. Some say, no, no, there's a problem there. Because if we go back, what is that, 400 and 430 days? 430 years from this, 
is about 588. So what's that? 588 plus 430? Do quick math. It's roughly when? Around the time of Solomon being king, right? 1,000, 950, Was that when Israel started sinning as a whole nation? I mean, shouldn't we go all the way back to the golden calf incident? Seems like with David and Solomon, they were sort of at their best. But maybe, okay, Solomon, he took on his wives. That, that's cited as a time when Israel turned. That's when they started turning to false gods. Maybe we could get the 390 in there, but the 40, 40 years, Judah, at this point, before it, Jerusalem is destroyed in 586, Jerusalem has been around for hundreds of years. The southern kingdom of, of Judah and Jerusalem has been around for hundreds of years. So the 40 doesn't fit there. So some say, well, the 390 looks back and the 40 looks forward. But 40 years from 588 doesn't really work either. I mean, that puts us in the middle of the captivity. And others will say, well, this is the far future. Everything looks towards the future. Symbolically, that's always a way to deal with difficult problems. Just call it symbolic. And some say this is literal. So from 597 to 167. But 167 doesn't put us anywhere good either. That's in the middle of the Maccabean revolts. Why would Ezekiel be talking about in the future? He seems to always be discussing the past. So I would just roughly lean towards the past here. But no one's been able to really make sense of the numbers here. So maybe you guys can go home and study this. Work it out. Write a book on it. And you'll be the talk of the scholarly world. I assume he's probably grouping some times together here, and it's not just a straight years that we're talking about. That Maybe if you go through the book of Kings, for example, there are certain kings who ruled godly, and there's many kings that ruled ungodly, wicked, evil. So that would be my guess, educated guess. But you guys can go home, and Owen, you can write a paper and turn it into a book. Your sister can help you with that, and she can be your editor. Okay, 16.8. So there's a lot of uses of covenant in Ezekiel, and there's quite a few covenants. So it's important to stop when you come across the word covenant. What's he talking about here? Which covenant? There's a lot of covenants. By the time you get to Ezekiel, all the covenants have been mentioned, even the new covenant. So what is he talking about when he uses these words? 16.8 Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at that time for love. So I spread my skirt over you, covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. So he's, he's giving this analogy of a young woman who was just born and left out to die. And at a certain time, God took care of that young woman. That represents Israel. And then later she's going to turn away from him, commit adultery. So what does this covenant mention here? He says, I entered into a covenant with you. What covenants, what major covenants has God already entered in with them at this point? We're really left with three. The Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. There is a priestly covenant. There is a new covenant, but these are the most likely options here. Now, the Abrahamic covenant, the problem with that is it's, you know, one that's done all with God doing the work, and it's an everlasting covenant. And that doesn't really work because the Abrahamic covenant would be more when the baby's born, not later when the baby grows up. So we're really left with A or C. And different, different commentators sort of argue about this. The Davidic covenant is the context, it seems. If you look at other passages like Psalm 132, Psalm 132, 13 through 17, and Ezekiel 16, 59. I could go either Mosaic or Davidic here. But I think the Mosaic specifically is the one mentioned later in this chapter, uh, in verse 59. So they broke the covenant in 1659. They can't break the Davidic covenant. That's a, an everlasting covenant. God promised David there would always be a ruler upon the throne. That leads us to the Messiah. They, they can't really do anything about that. Uh, the Mosaic one, though, 
That's the one that they did the sacrifices and they agreed to it. And they said, we agree to it. It was conditional. If they obeyed, they would be blessed. If they didn't obey, they would be cursed. So I think definitely 1659 is the mosaic. Question is, what's the one earlier here? Before you read that one, Frank, uh, look at 16.3. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. So the city itself was ruled by pagans. Then God came along and sort of uh, redeemed the city. He put his skirt over the city and he made a covenant with the city. Well, what covenant did he make with Jerusalem? Well, David was in Jerusalem, reigning and ruling from Jerusalem. So this could be the Davidic covenant. That's the way I lean. Uh, there's language here that, that could be the Mosaic one, but the Davidic one. It was made in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's God's special city. Why? Did God just roll the dice and pick Jerusalem? No, that he chose Jerusalem as a city on a hill where David would reign, and the future David would come as well and, and die on the cross and be raised. So he, he spread his skirt in Ezekiel. That means a protection. I think 16.8 saying the Davidic covenant. And then later he references, as he does often, this Mosaic covenant. Mosaic covenants, why they're in captivity, they broke it. They're cursed. They went into captivity because they broke the Mosaic. They can't break the Davidic. But he is reminding them that he entered into a covenant with Jerusalem, that there would always be into eternity a king upon the throne. So here we go again. Number six, another covenant. 16.60. 1660. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. So in the beginning of chapter 16, I think we've got the Davidic. At the end of chapter 16, or at least in, yeah, at the end, 59, the first one here, go back to 59. For thus says the Lord, I will also do with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. So that one's Mosaic. Now we roll into verse 60. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in those days of your youth. Well, which one's that? Probably the one he just mentioned in 59, the Mosaic. But more importantly, what's this everlasting covenant that he's going to make? They broke the old. He's going to give a new one, isn't he? And it's going to be everlasting. So I don't think he's coming back and referencing the Abrahamic here. Uh, He's referencing the new. And he's going to go into the new later on in his book uh, when we get to chapter 36. So yes, there's the old one. They broke it. There's the new one that he's going to give them. He's going to promise to give them in the future. It's important to stop and kind of ask yourself, what are these covenants when you're reading? All right, a more fun one here. The soul who sins will die all through chapter 18. This is the one we looked at last week. A lot of people are talking about today how we bear this the guilt of our father's sins. Well, they said that in Israel as well. It wasn't over slavery and racial issues. Back then it was, oh, here we are in captivity. God, you're punishing us for what our fathers did. You're punishing us, God. We didn't, we're like little kids whenever our fathers sinned and you came and took us into captivity. You're destroying Jerusalem. You're hurting us. Oh, you know, the, the, the fathers eat the grapes and the kids, they have to have the sour teeth because when you eat sour grapes, it makes your teeth, you know, your mouth feel sour. We're getting the effects of what our fathers did. And so he, he lays out in chapter 18 how that's not the case. He says, the soul who sins will die. It's, it's up to that individual and their sin and their guilt. It's not the Father. So we read pretty much the whole chapter last week when we went through that. The question then becomes, well, what about Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5? Where he's describing the law and he's saying here that he'll carry it to the 
third and fourth generations. The punishment will be on the third and fourth generations. So does this contradict what the law says? Or is this complementary in some way? You can probably already guess the answer, but we need to look at these passages. So Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 11. Some more charismatic Christians will say generational curses are upon you and your family. And they will cite an Exodus passage here or Deuteronomy. So those who hate God, he is going to punish them. And he even says he's going to, what, what's he going to do for the, to the third and fourth generation? He's, he's going to punish them for their sin. Uh, Deuteronomy, same exact thing, right? So is Ezekiel, the message God gave there, contradicting that? Let's take a guess. Does the Bible contradict itself? No. So we got to try to make sense of it. Well, first of all, the idea in Exodus and Deuteronomy and the idea in the Old Testament, especially the nation of Israel, is that if you sin and you hate God, most likely you're not going to teach your children about God. You're not going to teach your children how to follow the law. You're not going to teach them about God's ways. Now, what are they going to do? Like father, like son, like mother, uh, like daughter, like mother, and vice versa. You know, there's, there's a, it's not a curse on the family as much as a continual, you could say it's a providential punishment, but, but it's, it's each person is responsible for their own sin. The problem is we're all born sinners and we learn sin many times the way to sin from our parents. We don't have to learn just in general about sin. We're born with it, but we pick up very quickly at a young age the sins of our parents. So those who grow up in an ungodly household are more likely to be ungodly. doesn't mean God can't save them. Well, there's many times where we see God's grace operating in Scripture. And so B is, I think, the best answer. 24.16 of Deuteronomy helps us with that. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. So even in Deuteronomy, the law, we have this idea that each person is responsible for their own sin. So what we're talking about in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the sections on the Ten Commandments, are more about this idea that bad theology, bad teaching, bad legalistic doctrine, a hate for God, worship of pagans, is going to continue in a family for many generations. Did we not see that with Solomon? He brings in pagan wives. He lets them set up temples. He lets them set up places of worship on the mountains. That's not going to matter for the next generation, right? I mean, that's just these pagans. It's no big deal to let them worship in Israel. What happens to the next generation of Israelites? They start worshiping those same idols. Hey, they're out on the mountains. Solomon's wives did that. Solomon went out there occasionally. So it continues generation after generation after generation. Okay, number eight in chapter 20, verse 25. We are looking at this issue of the statutes. What are these statutes? Because they're called not good and they cannot live by them. So 2025, I'm back in Deuteronomy. There's not a 2025 in Deuteronomy. Who's got that one? Somebody read that one. Whoever's there. So what are these statutes that are not good? Is that the Mosaic law, the Mosaic statutes and ordinances? Is that the ones that God gave them after the golden calf? Remember there were, there were the original? Moses comes down, golden calf. You know, he throws them down. They break. He has to go back up and get some more. So we know God's law is good. So are these the second version, the second copy? Or are these something that the Gentiles had and God providentially let them follow Gentile laws? Or C, the Lord allowed the Jews to misinterpret and disobey his law? Or, you know, it's just rhetorical. It doesn't really mean anything. There's no connection to history. Well, always be careful with that. Because what's Ezekiel doing in chapter 20? He's recalling Israel's history. You can't just throw out one verse as not being history. Well, and the whole chapter is about that. It's titled in my Bible, subtitled, God's Dealing with Israel Rehearsed. He's going back and recounting 
how he dealt with them. I think the answer will be given to us in verse 23 and 24. Also, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands because they had not observed my ordinances, but had rejected my statutes and had profaned my Sabbaths and their eyes were on the idols of their fathers. So God gave his law. They rejected it. Okay, what's he going to do? Verse 25. I also gave them statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their gifts and that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire. They're offering up their babies to Molech here, false god, so that I might make them desolate in order that they might know that I am the Lord. So he's allowing them to misinterpret. Providentially, he's not directly causing this. They turned away from him. He's letting them continue in their sin. So when he says the statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not live, that's their thinking. They're thinking, these are not good. I want something better. I want to misinterpret the Bible. So you get to the days of Christ and you have the Pharisees and they've completely misinterpreted passages. You have the Sadducees who are even worse. They rejected much of the Old Testament and they are allowed by God's sovereignty. They're allowed to misinterpret and disobey his law. Why? so that he might make them desolate, in order they might know that I am the Lord. Any questions so far? Does God allow people to continue in their sin as a form of punishment? Do we see that anywhere else in the Bible? Where do we see that? Romans 1? See that with Saul? There's a spirit that's allowed to torment him. We see that with uh, many people in Scripture and in today's world. Why is sin allowed to keep going? When a person, let's say the person never repents, but they're allowed to do all this sin. Why does God allow that? It's a good theological question. It's in his plan. He knows the plan. He knows what's going on. He's ordained it for a reason, for his glory. Uh, we see even in Second Thessalonians that it says, God will send a deluding influence on those who've already turned away so that they would believe the lies of the Antichrist. Okay, the king of Tyre. If you were in my theology class a few years ago, we looked at the king of Tyre. It's kind of a similar discussion to Isaiah 14. So we're talking here about is this... Satan? Is this the actual king at the time who's Ethbaal III? Or is this symbolic of Adam? Or is this symbolic of Satan? So is he talking to the king directly? Is he really discussing Adam all of a sudden? Is he talking to the king but really behind the king is Satan? Or is he just talking straight to Satan and, and the king just happens to be the context surrounding this? So 28 starts out in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods and the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. So the king of Tyre is a wealthy city, is a very wealthy king. He thinks he's a God. The people worship him as a god like they did in egypt of pharaoh and this line of kings here were worshiped as gods in fact look at his name eth baal what do we know about baal it's one of the gods that the canaanites worship the israelites often fell into worshiping baal as well so he sees himself as a baal one of these godly figures that should be worshiped so we get down to verse 11 no one debates 1 through 10 it's clearly talking about the king we get down to verse 11 through 19, though, we hear some different language. So it's a little different prophecy. It changes here. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. So he's still talking to the king of Tyre. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, 
the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. He's saying on the day you were created, these jewels were made. Now we're looking back to Eden, the creation. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you are internally filled with violence and you sin. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I've destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom. By reason of your splendor, I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that you may see that they may see you by the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade you profaned your sanctuaries therefore i brought fire from the midst of you it has consumed you and i have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you you have become terrified and you will cease to be forever then he moves on talking about sidon a sister city so there's the text Let's hear it. Give me some arguments as to why we would want to take this as the actual king. What arguments do we see in this chapter that would make us want to take it as the actual king? Verse 12. What do you see in verse 12? The king of Tyre is right there. Okay, that's a good argument. Verse 2, king of Tyre. Okay, 1 through 10 are talking clearly about the king. There's no, not really a problem there. What's some uh, language that would make us think maybe this is talking about Adam and just Adam's sin and wickedness and the fall of Adam? 13. What do you see in 13? Eden, the Garden of God, right? Created, maybe not on the exact day that these stones were, but in the general time frame. Okay, what are some arguments to see this as symbolic of Satan? What do you see in 14? Cherub. That's just a little baby with wings. Little little fat baby with wings, right? No. Verse 9. I am a God. Okay, yeah. So he's clearly elevating himself as a God. Maybe there's a tie. That's really, D kind of blends um, A and C together, right? Yeah, though you are a man and not God. But he thinks he's a God. But at the time you get to 11, though, we have this language. I think Eden and the Garden of God is pretty strong. There are other cases where Eden is mentioned, and it has more to do with either the name of a city in the east or just the eastward direction. But it clarif- he clarifies it, the Garden of God. And the language of the cherub, that's, that's a real cherubim. We've already seen cherubim mentioned in Ezekiel. Cherubim were the huge angels underneath the throne when he sees the vision in chapter 1 and later when he sees the, the vision of God's glory returning to Jerusalem. So to me, the, the garden of God, the cherub language that you were created on the day that these stones were created in the holy mountain of God. Was Ethbaal III ever on the holy mountain of God? What's the holy mountain of God? Well, it's, a, it's the same as the garden of God and, and many Scholars will put the whole Bible together and say, even where Jerusalem sits in the time of David, traces all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I don't think we can know for certain, but there are, there are some connections that kind of point that way. But anyway, because God calls the Garden of God his holy mountain, and later he'll call Jerusalem his holy mountain. But anyway, the, the holy mountain is where this being was. I think that leans to uh, being symbolic of Satan. Symbolic of Satan. So I'm sorry, I said D is as a combination of A and C. That's not right. C is a combination of A and D, right? So if you say it's just the king or it's just Satan, I would say 
No, the king's there, it's obvious, says the king of Tyre. But who's behind such a such a person that would think that they're God? I remember, was it last week in the sermon, I talked about how the demons were the false gods of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Who do they worship when they worship pagans, pagan gods? The demons, it says. And even Paul says that in the New Testament. So is, could Satan be behind such a powerful, rich, wealthy, uh, evil tyrant here who gets worshipped by his people? Yes. So what, for whatever reason, he's prophesying to the king of Tyre. And, and maybe Satan is most influential right now at this point in history at the city of Tyre. And suddenly we get this little window where he's prophesying some things that would apply to the king of Tyre. But behind that, he seems to suddenly go in and talk to Satan. Are there any other places in the Bible where that might happen? When Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Does Jesus really think Peter is suddenly Satan? Did Peter transform into the actual Satan? No, what's he doing? Well, he's, he's telling us that that's a satanic influence on, on Peter to say, oh, you'll never do, you'll never die. Uh, and Jesus knows that that's the will of God the Father. But he's actually speaking directly to Satan through someone who just said something satanic. And so it's not unreasonable to think that, that could be the case here. And I think the language just doesn't fit with this king. Uh, he can't have been in the Garden of Eden. And a cherub is a cherub is strong. It's, it's only used to speak of a certain order of angels. All right, we're running out of time. We're not going to get through all 16. Number 10, David. Well, David's mentioned in 34, chapter 34 and 37. I won't read them to you. Just take my word, David's mentioned there. King David. What's the problem? David's going to come in the future. He's going to reign in Israel. What's the problem? David's dead by the time Ezekiel writes. He's been dead for hundreds of years. So are we talking about David coming back to life? Resurrected David? Maybe this is a millennial kingdom? Or are we talking about Messiah, the greater David? So I said I wasn't going to read it, but I have to read a little bit. 34, 23... Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. What does that sound like? Does that sound like the resurrected David? Thirty-seven, twenty-four. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. It's the Messiah. Sure, we, we get that from the New Testament, but the New Testament... <laughs> connects points in the old that we couldn't quite see and that they couldn't quite see. But Ezekiel is pointing forward based on this message by God to a greater David. I don't think he's saying David's going to be resurrected and suddenly become king again. He will be resurrected, I think, but this passage is not talking about him. All right, covenant of peace. Covenant of peace in 3425. 34.25. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Anytime there's the word covenant, we need to start thinking, what, what covenant is this? If we're going to be good students of the Bible. 37, 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. What do you guys think? Is this the new covenant looking forward? Is this looking back to Noah? Or, real scholar language here, B, a future covenant inaugurated when other covenants are fulfilled. There's always a cop-out selection, right? 
we don't know. We'll just make something up. Well, there's only so many covenants mentioned in the Bible, so we can't just make one up. It's looking forward. It's an everlasting covenant. Yeah, the Noahic covenant was everlasting, but this is talking about the new covenant. This is almost just like the last one I read is just like the end of Revelation, right? My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God. They will be my people, and the nations will know that I'm the Lord. His sanctuary will be there. New covenant. If you have to guess, guess new covenant in Ezekiel. And the end of Ezekiel, the end of Jeremiah, it won't always be the case, but especially when it's something in the future and it's with Israel and it's everlasting. Okay, oh, I don't know how much we can get into Gog, the land of Magog. Sounds like something just from a fairy tale story, right? It's right out of the Bible. Gog of the land of Magog. We'll at least talk about him and then we'll talk about when this is later. That's probably the more controversial discussion. Let's just talk about the wording here. We're just looking at what the words mean. So, in the future, I think that's pretty clear in the text, but we'll talk about that next week. In the future, there's going to be this person, this man named Gog, 38.2. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So, Ezekiel's going to prophesy against this man, this ruler in the future, and say, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you, O Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So the NASB and probably whatever translation you have translates it as option A. Let's go to 39.2 just to see it comes up again. And I will turn you around, drive you on, take you up from the remotest parts of the north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. He's talking about uh, what's going to happen to this person. He's judging Gog and Magog, or Gog from the land of Magog. So should we say he's a prince, Gog, he's a prince, over these three territories? Or does the word Rosh just mean chief? So he's really just ruling over Meshach and Tubal. But he's from the land generally associated with Magog. Meshach and Tubal, we can go back in Genesis and we can trace the origin of, of those peoples. Don't exactly know where they were, but this is to the north. Whatever this is, is to the north. Probably around the place of Iran, maybe up into in between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, those people groups. There's no mention of Rosh. Frank's our Hebrew scholar. We got, we got lots of Hebrew scholars in the room here. Rosh. Who knows the Hebrew word Rosh? What does that mean? Head. We got a Logos expert on the front row. Rosh means head. And if you look it up in Hallett, the Hebrew dictionary, there's lots of ways it can be used. But the most common one is head. And most Hebrew dictionaries don't list it as a country. That's kind of interesting today because some people who like to do their exegesis from the newspapers see Rosh and they say, what sounds like Rosh today? Rus, Russia. That's to the north. They're pretty powerful. So Russia is going to have a huge army. This is a massive battle that takes place. So Russia's got this huge army or the USSR is, is originally, I think, where they, they pointed that way. But Rosh, Russia, there you go. Question solved. Well, Rosh means head. So it's, I think it's better translated chief or head prince of these two areas of Meshach and Tubal. But the name Rus, R-U-S, doesn't even come into use until the medieval times. The Vikings come down the river there and settle in the Slavic lands. And they call the Viking prince of Kiev the Rus. And that becomes the Russian people from about 12 to 1400 on. So we have a large gap. This is not Russia. Russia wasn't in Scripture. Nobody knew anything about Russia. It wasn't a nation. It wasn't a people. The Vikings lived to the north. The Vikings didn't live in um, the Slavic area. Today we call Russia. So B. 
So that's going to be important because next week we'll talk about timing and when this is going to happen. But we, we sort of already sort of narrowed it and said it's not, at least we know it's probably not Russia. It could be, but it, it's more likely it's going to be, if you take a future view on this, it's more likely going to be somewhere around the um, Iranian area or north of that. And this is going to be a mighty leader. I think it's the Antichrist. We'll talk more about that next week. We've got uh, how many more left? Four or five? So we'll have to do that before we get into Daniel, which we're going to have even more fun on interpretive issues with. And there are lots of people who have uh, this name. Uh, you think of, uh, I think Cyrus, if you look it up in Hebrew, and Isaiah is Cyrosh, indicating the head there, I think, in his name. But no country's called that. All right, let's pray. And then you guys can go home and solve all these difficult ones. Come back next week with your answers. We'll probably spend a few minutes on the temple and all these questions on the future here and Ezekiel. And then maybe we'll start with Daniel before next class is over. Father, there's a, a lot of good and interesting things here. Uh, most of these are not going to affect our salvation uh, because we know that Christ has already secured our righteousness if we're believers in him. But it does help us to understand your word better. It helps us to think about these things deeply and, and see what you intended through the original writers like Ezekiel here. Just give us wisdom as we read. Help us to be constant disciples, learners, wanting to know more, wanting to discover more of your word and see what it means for us. Give us more wisdom in that. We pray that you would do this. Amen.